Hey, it's Jess Reyes. Welcome to the first episode of season three of Where To From Here. We are going to be doing things a little different for a bit with this season. We're adding some new voices into the mix. I'm going to maybe do some rants. <laughs> I also want to promote artists, so you might hear me plugging some events. Season three might just go off the rails in a good way. So first things first, let's kick it off right here with a conversation with artists Jalu Wang and Naomi Ko. I feel so lucky to say that they did this talk specifically for this podcast. Thank you to both of them for taking the time to connect and share thoughts on a variety of important topics. I talked with Jalu last season, so let me reintroduce you to her. Shalu Wang, uh, she, they, uh, is an emerging documentary filmmaker, also a translator from the Huawei Muslim Autonomous Region of China. Uh, their practice is based in the mapping of interiority with the use of video, poetry, memory, translations, and a decolonial lens. Their work uh, has been screened at local venues and international film festivals. Uh, they have contributed translations to journals, uh, including On Limbo and Cinephilia. Uh, Jalou is a re recipient of the 2019 Jerome Film and Media Grant. It's a fellow of DocX Archive Lab 2021, organized by Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies. Jalou has been generously funded, uh, supported uh, by the Me Metropolitan Regional Arts Council of Minnesota, the St. Paul uh, Neighborhood Network, Jerome Foundation, Women Make Movies, and Union Docs. They live in Minneapolis. Jalou just shared with me some news. Uh, so a few different things I want to um, I want to share with you. So uh, Shalou's film, I Wish You Happy Moon Festival, uh, a project that she made in a lab which Naomi led in 2021. Uh, it got into the Taiwan International Documentary Festival as well as North by North International Film Festival. Jalou is also participating in an online residency for three months with four other artists through the On Being podcast. Pretty cool. They had an open uh, call for applications uh, and uh, congrats. You were selected, Shalou. We're really, really happy for you. Uh, also really cool, and I'm definitely going to be checking this out. Um, uh, Jalou is curating a program for the Cinema Lounge, which is a program of Film North. Uh, it's coming out on April 13th. It will be online. Um, so definitely um, got to check that out. Uh, I will be making sure um, that I have uh, links in the show notes uh, in case you're curious. Now let me introduce you to Naomi Ko. Uh, it goes by she, her. Uh, Naomi is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, performance artist, and cultural producer. She was born and raised in Minnesota to immigrant parents from South Korea, making her at once the most truculent and most passive person in any room. Her pilot, Nice, which she wrote and starred in, premiered at Tribeca Film Festival. Her work has been developed by Warner Brothers Stage 13, and she has received support from the McKnight Foundation, the Knight Foundation, and Jerome Foundation, and more. She is also a founding member of the Funny Asian Women Collective, also known as FOC, a group that uses comedy to combat the invisibility and dehumanization of Asian women. Naomi is currently a Bush Leadership Fellow and a Sundance Fellow. You can learn more about Naomi and her work 
on her website, konaomi.com, and on social media at konaomi. Before we uh, dive into this conversation, I know you're waiting for it, I want to plug one more thing. Naomi is going to be at the Ordway later this month uh, performing with Falk on Saturday, April 16th. Uh, Falk first performed at the Ordway back in 2019. It was a nearly sold out crowd. Uh, sounds like it was pretty amazing and now they're back. Uh, so the Ordway in partnership with the Knight Foundation's Opportunity Fund uh, presents um, uh, funny Asian Women Collective for another night. Uh, it's going to be amazing. Um, and they talk about controversial issues like race, misogyny, white supremacy, and sex. So um, make sure you make it out to this event. Again, that's on Saturday, April 16th. Links will be in the show notes. Um, yeah. Thank you to Jalu and Naomi for this wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it. I felt like a fly on the wall. <laughs> um, and now I get to have more people uh, get to hear um, a conversation that uh, I feel is so important and relevant, funny at times, um, and also touching and uh, personal. So thank you so much. Enjoy. This is Xiaolu. I'm the special guest of today's episode. At the time of me recording this opening, the world has shifted many folds. What is present with me besides the many endings in my personal life and my grandmother's upcoming Memorial Day is the Ukrainian borders and its inhabitants. But the conversation with Naomi Ko recenters a sense of being present and protecting the space of laughter and joy. In this episode, Naomi speaks to the place of pain in which comedy comes from. Making space for comedy is challenging when a lot of the work we consume in the world is reducing our experiences to being the sad immigrants. She also speaks to the stickiness of making work with integrity within the hierarchical structures of the storytelling industry, leaving the seduction of trends and deepening her own specificity. Naomi is a force of piercing honesty, someone who doesn't romanticize the South Korean motherland as a special kind of paradise or hell, but a site with mirrors that continue to reflect and obscure our notions of otherness and identity. Also, listen to the end to find out how Genghis Khan is a radical feminist. Here is our conversation. Just witnessing you talk about your work and um, like what, what was re always really powerful for me is about like your, your idea of comedy, you mm. know, and the meaning of comedy for you. So maybe we can, we can start there. Like why comedy and what does that mean to you? 
think there's just a lot of places where I could start. I mean, I, I come from a pretty funny family. Um, like my, my dad and I have pretty much the same personality and I spent like my, my father was probably my primary caretaker growing up. Um, I just spent a lot, a lot more time with my dad than my mom. And so I always just kind of always was around a very sarcastic, dry sense of humor. And, and my father being both fully fluent in Korean and in English, um, was just, it just was very natural for me to, to just witness comedy in both Korean and, and in English. And, and, and I also think like I'm, I'm drawn to comedy because I'm naturally a very sad person. I'm a very depressed individual and comedy, like Robin Williams said it best, like comedy comes from a place of pain. And, and I think comedy is a really great way to not only process a lot of things that are hard in your life, but also diffuse the tension. I think there's just a lot of things in our society that make us really tense. And, and I think comedy is a really great way to win over hearts and minds. I think that's the really, one of the things that I really like about comedy is that you, it's a really great way to win over someone's heart and their mind by making them laugh. And also I think part of it is that I just enjoy to laugh. I think there's a lot of things in this world that are serious and are hard. And especially coming from the Asian American community, like everything that we read, everything that we watch, everything that we see or listen to is just, oh, sad, 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 drama, 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 trauma, trauma, trauma. And it's, and that's exhausting. Like that's so emotionally draining and exhausting that I rather me as a practicing artist, I rather just do comedy because then at least there is some joy. There is some laughter. There is some collective happiness going on in the art making instead of just, you know, sitting there in just total despair. Mm. So what is it like making space? for comedy for you like in your life and also in your work Mm. um I guess I'll talk about the work first making comedy like making a space for comedy in my work has always been something quite challenging to be honest because um I think very early on I saw that things that would get published things that would get made things that would premiere debut especially from Asian American artists were always about like a really sad immigration story or about how you've been a victim of racism. And, and I've also seen just in my, as a, as an artist in Minnesota who writes a lot of grants that panelists really respond to sad things, traumatic things, traumatic things. They, dramatic and traumatic things. And also sitting on panels, grant panels, I also see that too. Like I, I hear my colleagues talk about that. So um, so it's always been really important to me to, to make room for comedy because I know that people want to laugh. Like I, I know that people want comedy. I know people want to laugh. People talk about Oh, did you watch the Chappelle show or did you watch Black Lady Sketch Show? Did you watch Keen Peel? And we and it's interesting that we always have to go to different, you know, thank, you know, thank God for Key and Peel, not so much Dave Chappelle. I don't know. I guess thank you, Dave Chappelle, to a certain point. And then now mm-hmm. fuck you, Dave Chappelle. Shut the fuck up. Um, but he, he got too rich and too famous. But um, 
Like we, we've always had to watch either white comics, black comics, Latino comics. I remember growing up, I watched a lot of like the George Lopez show. Like that was one of my favorite shows growing up as a, as a kid. And so we would watch a lot of, um, other people make comedy, but not a lot of people in our own community make com- comedy, um, except for like very few folks like Margaret Cho, who paved the way. And then Bobby Lee, who was on Mad TV, which is something that I watched a lot as a kid, too. So, you know, I it, it is interesting because I do feel like there is a hierarchy. I do think that comedic projects are rated really low on the scale of importance. It's something that I come up with a lot. Like, um, for example, I'm going to be really frank, like Sundance does not prioritize comedic projects. And, and sometimes they do, but they're usually very dark and they're usually not featuring um, Asian Americans. Projects that, that are classified as comedies really aren't comedies or they're like really dramas with comedic moments, but, um, but really I think there has been this kind of like weird devaluation of, of comedy and what comedy plays. I think, um, like the only acceptable places where comedy really is able to shine is when there are like political comedy shows, like the daily show, um, is where like Jon Stewart really helped elevate comedy in that way. But, um, otherwise like I don't, it's, it's hard to make space for comedy. And I'm one of the co-founders of Funny Asian Women Collective, which I co-founded with Mei Liang and Sai Mukta Bangse, who we refer to as Mooks. Um, so we, we saw that like very early on, like when we were doing that, we, we actually didn't win a lot of grants right at the beginning, which was kind of shocking, especially from the three of us who are such experienced grant writers. And, and it was hard to kind of contextualize to other community members to funders, the importance of what comedy does in our community. So it, you know, it 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 did take a while for us to learn how to pitch comedy to to major funders and talk about why is this important? What does this have to say about our community? You know, we're not just making like poop jokes or fart jokes, but actually if we are making poop jokes and fart jokes, that, that actually matters because we don't hear that from Asian body, like Asian faces and Asian voices, you know, especially from Asian women and non-binary folks. And, you know, as, as a filmmaker, which is my primary artistic medium, it's also, you know, it's, it's also been kind of hard to try to figure out how to, how to make comedy that, that can live besides just comedic writing because a lot of um you know as a, as a filmmaker like i have a, i do a lot of comedy but you know where that really shines is in my tv writing and that's really accepted in the tv space but feature films and doing short films is also kind of hard like oh you're doing a comedic short film that's just a sketch no it's a short film it's a narrative short film it's a comedic narrative short film oh it's a sketch like, so it, it's weird how, how things get, you know, um, devalued in that, in that sense, how comedy gets devalued. But, um, but, uh, I guess in, in my personal life to answer that second part of the question is, you, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, I, 
it's really hard to articulate why comedy is such a big part of my personal life. I think, I think it's because I do come from hardships. I I've experienced hardship, my family, you know, there's all the ancestral and generational trauma, blah, 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 blah. But, um, but you, you gotta, you gotta find a moment to laugh. And, Mm -hmm. and I do surround myself with a lot of people that, that make me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel that. I was actually just, um, I came across, um, uh, I guess like a talk therapy psychology show in China and they interviewed this guy who became, um, a founder for like laughter therapy, I guess, like it mm-hmm. leads a lot of, um, spaces, and, and just like how contagious, you know, and that emotion is and, and how he also talks about like, like laughter helped him cure like depression. He had shoulder problems and, and it's like after year, like years of seeking help and, you know, folk medicine and, or like professional medicine, but like, but laughter is just like such natural medicine, mm-hmm. you know, just so integrated in, in his life. And they said something in there how people who are like live alone, they just experience laughter less. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they don't have opportunities to laugh. And that, that's why like being in like a social setting being like interacting with other people that's that's one way for laughter to be like you know ignited yeah Mm, I definitely felt that and saw that um because when the comedy is usually done in in the public sphere right it's usually done in like in comedy clubs or in theaters or performance venues and and like I remember during the early parts of the pandemic, I will watch my friends do comedy shows on Zoom and no one was laughing. One, you couldn't hear the laughter because everybody was muted, like out of respect for the comic who who was performing. But then also at the same time, like it's not it's not the same. The jokes weren't landing. It, it just and you could because it's comedy is really is a really reciprocal type of art making in that when a comedian or comedic artist is performing there and the laughter and just the reaction that they're getting from the audience is what informs them and, and what feeds them. Like I, sometimes if a joke doesn't land, I move on really quickly. If I, if they're, if the audience is laughing as really hard, I keep riding that train until, until I, I feel like I, I need to move on. Otherwise the audience is going to be like, this bitch can only do one joke. Um, so it's it, it is interesting because there is this kind of communal um healing a communal joy um and laughter is really contagious and even watching certain comedic like for example you remember that gym short that I directed right um during production of course like I was ultra stressed out <laughs> because it was my first time performing and directing a piece. And then, um, but when I was editing with my editor, I was just like, this is fucking stupid. 
I hate this. This is so dumb. This is so dumb. But then when we did a test screening and there was 20 people there and they were laughing, I was like, oh, maybe it is funny again. Like I'm laughing again. (laughs) I'm not a complete, you know, piece of shit. (laughs) I'm, I'm actually pretty funny. And, and, and it's interesting how you, when you hear other people laugh, when you see, when you're sharing that energy and you're hearing that laughter happen, um, you find it funny. I think that's why like CBS sitcoms have a laugh track because otherwise like you don't know when to laugh because it's not funny. Yeah. I'm wondering what is like the, the relationship of curses to you and like both, um, you know, like cursing as an act Mm. and also like, I don't know, receive curses. Yeah. Um, so cursing has always been a natural part of my vocabulary. That is also thanks to my father. According to my mom, my first word that I ever spoke was Shibai, which is fucking Korean. And I think that has to do with the fact that it was my dad. One of, I don't remember which parent, one of my parents was working nights and one of the parents is working days. And, and so I spent a lot of time with my dad when I was really little because my sister was off in preschool and it was just me and me and my dad. And she, you know, she, and he always gets really mad at me because he's like, you're so foul mouth. Why do you, why do you talk like that? And I look at him I'm like, you're foul mouth, you're foul mouth. <laughs> And you talk like that. Where do you think I learned this from? Like you have no one to blame but yourself because you influence my language pattern, like my vocabulary and how I speak and my language. You know, I was born and raised in Minnesota and I was always very, very cognizant, very conscious of how society views Asian women, how they viewed me as an Asian woman and, and cursing and speaking profanely, I guess, was a very powerful act for me to just say, don't fuck with me. Like when I would, when I would, because I think, you know, when, when you're little and you experience, you have, you know, your first conscious memories of um, what people say or did to you. Like, for example, when I was, I remember very frankly, when I was four years old and I would be at the playground and people would pull back their eyes at me, mm, yeah. making fun of my yeah. mm-hmm. Asian monolid eyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I would just say, don't do that, but they would keep doing that. Right. And then finally, when I would get, when I was older and mm. people would do racist shit to me, I would say, don't fucking do that. I will mm. mess you up. Mm. And their reaction would be very different mm. to that. Right. Also, because I think like Asian cultures, you know, Shalu, both of you and I were great, were raised in Confucius mm-hmm. societies, yes. households. Like there, there is a manner in which that women are supposed to act and like, no, thank you. Um, I don't adhere to Confucian culture because it's not the indigenous culture and way of life for Korean people. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I was, I was like, thank you, Chinese people, for bringing that to Korea. Um, you know, I grew up with a lot of older male relatives, and and I just didn't like the way that they treated me, and mm-hmm. and so cursing became again a way for me to distinguish myself and to to showcase um, 
that I'm not someone to be messed with. Mm. You know, I think that and the combination of me being taller for an Asian woman and for being an athlete for so long of my life and having a very athletic build that plus cursing had made it very clear that I wasn't one to be intimidated with. So it was, you know, I think as I, especially in college, because in high school, you can't just be like, Oh fuck shit. Damn. Even though in some classes they would let you do that. But um, Mm -hmm. in college, when, when really nobody really cared about how how you spoke at that point, it really, Mm -hmm. it really kind of came into fruition. I typically don't mind when people curse um to me like if someone says hey fuck you Naomi I'm like yeah fuck you too I don't I don't give a shit yeah. um it's when it's when people say really racist or sexist and misogynistic things that yeah. that bother me totally. um I love swearing I think it's you know I think that's kind of really the beauty of the English language um if there yeah. was a reason <laughs> <laughs> Because, uh-huh. because it's, it's really hard. I don't know how it is in Mandarin, but like, it's, it's hard mm, to curse yeah. in Korean. Mm, it's just, mm. it's just, yeah, I think it is. Mm. Um, there's just not a lot of vocabulary, like, you know, mm. there's certain phrases in Korean that are like, tra- like you could use it depending upon your tone and the context and who you're talking to that could refer to bitch, bastard, asshole, jackass, like, you know, and and in English, we we have four different words that I just said. Just while in one word in Korean, it can it can describe like sagaji can can describe all four of those words. And mm. and and I mean, if there was any reason why my parents chose to immigrate to the United States, like I would like, I think this is the reason. This is the reason why. So we could swear for you know that's the American <laughs> dream is to have their daughter swear and be as foul mouth and as crass as possible and totally get away with it um but yeah i i but also i think it's you know the way that i i was raised to speak korean um Mm -hmm. because there's so many formalities the formal the polite tone that you have to use and just because typically when i spoke in korean i was speaking to people who were my elders and my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents, like I, I couldn't just, you know, bust out like a fuck you to grandma. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. I want right. her to live. I don't want right. her to die. Like, because she'll, she'll have a heart attack after she beats me to death. Like <laughs> then we both, we both die, but they, what did, what do they say? English is a bastard, bastard language. Uh-huh. So right. it would make sense that there's a lot of foul terms yeah in in english yeah you know i don't think i've never ever told you this but um i think this is the first time that i met you it was at a clapback workshop and i remember you like clearly i think you said fuck like i don't know and you introduced yourself by saying like i say fuck a lot you know Mm -hmm. and i just remember in that moment i feel a sense of like liberation and freedom when i see you, you know you like in taking comfort in that or or uh, yeah i feel like comfort and refuge it it could i'm i'm thinking of curse as a practice mm-hmm. you know as a refuge and I, yeah i just felt very liberated like here is somebody 
who is authentic in their expression. Uh, and this is, you know, their way of being. And they are not ashamed or not censoring themselves. They're just, you know, like, fuck respectability. They're like, this is how I be. And what fuck all of your, you know, signs, um, what do you call symbols that you would assign of, you know, being an Asian. Like, this is how I be. Like, yeah. I, I just thought that was really powerful. Yeah. And I think especially in the space, you know, that, you know, that was a fuck clapback workshop that only female identifying folks can be a part of Asian mm -hmm. female identifying folks can be a part of. And like, you know, for example, I've done a lot of interviews for NPR. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't curse when I'm on NPR right? because it's public radio. Like I, I just, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I respect Angela Davis. I respect the work that mm -hmm. she has done. I'm not going to curse on her show. It's live. I'm not going to do that to her. Um, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to curse in front of legislators. I, I'm, I'm not going to do that because I also want their mm -hmm. legislative support for mm. shit that I want funded. Um, but I think like, especially in a space where you're, you're with your community, right? Yeah. Female identifying Asian Asians, we should be liberated to be anything and everything that we want to be. Mm. And if there's one space, because no matter, like, I'm not going to say that cursing, my, my curse practice, I'm, I'm taking back the patriarchy or mm -hmm. you know, I'm dismantling all this shit. I can't because I can't because I have to participate in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have to participate yeah. in patriarchy. I have to participate in right. this society. Um, but at least in the space of of our own, we mm -hmm. should be able to do it. And and I'm really glad that you said that because one of the th hardest things about work our work in FOC is the continuous self-censoring mm -hmm. that female identifying Asians did. Like, for example, when we were doing our um, big super show at the Ordway back in 2019, like the other Asian female identifying comics that were there that, you know, who were at our time, like the junior members, like would just kind of stop. Mm. and 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 say like can I really say this or can I not really say this I'm like of course you can say it. if there's a space that you can say it this is the space that you should be able to say it mm. when I mean no holds bar I really mean no holds bar like May and I were doing a sketch about raping men like which still makes a lot of people uncomfortable mm. we created a sketch called the you first kit and which is that we wanted to create a you first kit so women wouldn't so you, we could you first somebody before we got me too. Mm. And, and obviously it's, it's a lot, it's a, it's a, it was a sketch mm. that really has to do with like the subscription box culture. One, mm. one thing influence, social media influencer, but more importantly, the way that society reacts and refuses to believe women when it comes to sexual assault. And like, this was right after, um, Brett Kavanaugh too. Mm. So we, you know, we, we were doing this and I remember folks were being like, this sketch makes me really uncomfortable or I don't know if we should do it. And part of me was thinking, well, this, you know, we have to like, if <laughs> we have to do it mm. because I don't, I'm not going to censor myself because I do feel very strongly about sexual assault against women. I feel very strongly about that. Is something that affects me and a lot of people I know and I love 
on a very personal, visceral level. Like, I'm going to make a joke about this. I'm going like, and, and so it's, it's that, it's that weird thing where like, I remember one of our um, FOC members, she's a very new Hmong female comedian. Mm -hmm. And she, she was, she was, we were doing some video sketches that we were debuting at the Ordway show. And and she was just like, should I do this? Should I make this joke? She was making a joke about, um, like she was making a sex ad because she wanted to have sex with a man. And we made this like parody. I remember that. Sketch yeah. Of, yeah. Um, and, and while we were filming it, I remember she was just like, I don't know. Should I say it? I'm like, yeah, say it. I'm, and I was, I was like, this is the beauty of film. Like if you, if you really don't like it, we can cut it out, but you at least, we at least got to have a take of it mm. because you don't want to regret not having this. Mm. And, yeah. and then that sketch was a huge hit. People yeah. were laughing so hard. And she was just like, she was like, oh, I'm really fine. I'm like, yeah, you are hilarious. You were the breakout star that night. Mm. Yeah. You know, um, like, can, yeah. Can we go in there a little bit? Like, I, I just love, how in that situation right like this this level of um integrity and and like staying true to the quality of the work right like you're able to protect that and like empower this person to claim to own it to claim it mm -hmm. so yeah i'm just wondering like what kind of practices supports your like sense of integrity yeah yeah that's that's a really tough question because this is something that I really battle with too I, I mean Jalu you know both both you and I were we're filmmakers so mm -hmm. we're we're constantly battling with this and we have to and I feel like we have to battle it with more because film is such an expensive medium that I, I feel like our, our integrity is always questioned mm -hmm. um I don't, you know, it's really hard because when I first had a show in Hollywood, I was, it was at Warner Brothers and in a part of me, like, I remember I was talking to my reps about this. I was talking to my friends about this and like, I had one camp of friends being like, this is not your only opportunity. So I think you need to create the show you want to create. And if they don't like it, they don't like it. And then I had another camp of friends who were like, this is probably one of the only opportunities you're mm -hmm. ever going to get. You're a 26 year old Asian American woman at one of the most powerful studios and one of the most like venerated studios in Hollywood. You need to suck it up and just get your foot in the door, mm -hmm. make this show happen. And then you'll be able to change the rules. And and in some ways I did really keep like I did keep my foot down about some things. Like I, you know, it was very important to me to stay as true as to my experience as a Korean Minnesotan, um, because as Asians in the Midwest, I do believe we have a very unique experience and I'm not going to change that. Um, but in some ways I did feel like I did compromise my integrity because I really wanted this show to happen, not only like, you know, and I'm going to be really honest and frank because that would launch my career that would launch my career, but then also it would launch a major opportunity for my, our community in Minnesota to have a TV series there. 
for all of us to have like work mm-hmm. and a studio level, studio level work mm-hmm. and studio level money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and so that, that's really hard. And I mean, in some ways I do compromise my integrity. There mm-hmm. are writing samples I write that I'm just like, this is 1000% commercial. Can I please get staffed on a TV show? And then there are other projects where I find to be, I, I keep very close to me and I won't compromise for, and then I have to write like 50 grants to get it funded and not even fully funded, just like one eighth funded. And then everybody has to take a pay cut and it's miserable for everybody. Well, pay wise. I hope everybody's having a fun time on set at least. Um, what are those projects? I think nice is really definitely one of those projects um, because I could change it. I could attach like a very popular Korean American actress onto it who is not right for the role. Like she is 1000% not right for the role. She's just on TV a lot and had a very successful, has so far pretty successful career and has a similar experience of, of having cancer, but doesn't have that kind of sarcasm, which I think the protagonist of nice is really known for. Um, and also just, you know, I I'm working on a feature film right now called Mary Korean, which is about Korean Americans who go back to Korea and try to marry Korean <laughs> Koreans from South Korea. And it's this whole relationship of like how, South Korea is the most desirable country, it seems like right now, because of BTS, Squid Game, Parasite, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and how Korean Americans feel kind of left behind in that. But then also talking about the really pressing issues of what femininity and masculinity means in both the United States for Korean Americans and also in South Korea. And I've had actually some quite some interest in that movie because people were like, holy shit, we, you know, they heard Mary Korean. And I think because of Squid Game and BTS, people, people were like, oh, this is, this could be it. And, and I'm not going to sell that script to a studio because I know, I know I'm going to get like kicked off the project right away. I don't have faith mm-hmm. in the studio. Maybe, maybe they, they'll keep me on. I don't know. I'm, mm-hmm. But I don't have enough Instagram followers and I don't have a TikTok to, to, to have myself stay on this project. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my cynical side. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe there is somebody as an executive at a studio that will be willing to see through my vision. Let's have a conversation. But um, that's a project that I'm, I'm keeping very close to me because it really it does really matter how it is executed. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying this to be, to be like vain It's mm-hmm. just that this story is not just like your traditional rom-com. This has to do with a lot of nuances that, mm-hmm. you know, first and second generation Korean Americans feel and Koreans from Korea feel about it. And, and I would like to see those nuances through because I think that's what makes the movie really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you you know, and I think there, there is another project that I'm holding really, really close to me, which is a, it's a comedy drama feature film about, um, a very suicidal scientist who is trying to create the perfect anti-aging drug and 
And then once she is able to do that, she's going to kill herself. <laughs> and that's, that's a really important project to me too. And so there, there are some projects that I, you know, but then there's other projects that I'm just kind of like, whatever, mm-hmm. who cares? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I sell it, I sell it. I'm like, it's a payday for, for everybody, meaning right. me and my reps yeah, and my friends, because I have to take everybody out for lobster dinner, but, um, <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, so I mean it it's hard and like Fock is definitely one of those projects that I'm very protective of. Mm. There there have been a couple times where Fox's integrity has come come into play mm-hmm. and that individuals have questioned um mm-hmm. Mooks May and R like the Fock leadership, the co-founders are our integrity about about it and you know like mm. May and Mooks are in their 40s and I'm in my 30s. So mm-hmm. like we've been doing this for quite some time. We don't want to compromise anymore. Like I, I feel like Fock is one of those spaces where like because we have to compromise, every artist has to compromise their integrity in some shape or another. And I think as filmmakers, like we know that we have to do it much more frequently. But but we're not trust fund kids. Mm-hmm we're not trust fund kids. Like, you know, my parents are US, my parents are postal employees. They work for USPS. You know, May's parents and Mooks's parents were refugees from Southeast Asia. Like we don't, we, we have no access to trust funds. We, you know, we're the first people in our families to go to college. Like our generations are the first ones to go to college and get college degrees. Like we don't have that safety net. We don't have that mm-hmm. social and financial safety net for us to be, to have complete integrity all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there are aspects where you do feel like you are selling out mm-hmm. there, you know, and I think, I think artists who say that they never sold out or constantly selling out or are just rich. Um, Every artist has to sell out at some point in order to just make a living. And, but, but because fuck, you know, May Mooks and I, we have to do this in certain aspects of our career. We really wanted to create fuck as a way that will never compromise. Mm, Yeah, no, I love that connection, you know, about, integrity and privilege and and just like the reality as you know you Naomi or mm. a fuck like have to navigate in the landscape of Midwest um you know as Asians or yeah actually yeah can we talk about more like the nuance right between like Midwest Asians coastal Asians and, and South Koreans yeah. Well, I think Midwest Asians, we are very used to navigating, like, you know, the term code switching, right? We know how to code switch mm-hmm. in between our, our own specific communities, our own ethnic enclaves, and then our greater racial enclaves, and then and then greater white society. And, and then also within um, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, all these other... Um, POC communities, we know we're all, we're all constantly code switching. Right. And I think Minnesota, because of just, um, the culture, especially with Minnesota, nice culture and that passive aggressive culture, we're, we're really ingrained in, in that. And, and so 
what's interesting is that like, because I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles and which I call like a very, and I'm in a very specific part of Los Angeles, which is San Gabriel Valley, like Asians, just Asians. Like if you, my apartment building, Asians, it's great. Elderly Asians. Like, like, I don't know, is a lot of Mandarin Cantonese is spoken. I don't know what the fuck is going on. I'm okay with it. We're, we're all cool. Everything smells like peanut oil. It's great. Like, <laughs> I like the smell of peanut. I like, I love Asian food. And, and, and what's interesting is that I think like coastal Asians, especially those in Southern California and those in New York city really think that they are the powerhouses of Asian America with like completely disregarding the fact that there are, you know, a half a million Asian Americans who live in Minnesota, three million Asians, Asian Americans living in Illinois, I believe, like collectively in the Midwest, there's about six million of us. And then 100% forgetting that there is a shit ton of Asian people in Atlanta. Like, mm. like they got an H Mart that is, I think, four stories. Wow. I heard I heard this rumor that there's a four-story <laughs> H Mart in Atlanta. It is like the promised place. Like how how could you wow. just that I mean if there's four level H Mart in Atlanta, that 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 means something. Yeah. Yeah. Um so and then also like them completely forgetting that there's this state called Hawaii, which mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. which like the original OG of Asian yes. America. Um mm. Um, but yeah. so it, it is interesting to kind of see mm. how, you know, as an Asian Minnesotan, how we're treated, how, how we're seen mm-hmm. to these powerhouses and, and because like, you know, I would say that because the Asian, Asian America, and that includes, you know, the 70 various ethnic groups that make up Asia. Like, you know, I consider Asian America, the Asian part of Istanbul, like the Asian minor part, Mm. like not, not the, not the European part of Istanbul. I'm talking about like, you got to cross the Bosphorus and then that's where Asia starts. Uh You know, we're going through all of the stands, even parts of Russia. Hey, that's Asia. Like, (laughs) what's up? What's up? My cousins, my Siberian cousins. Um, Yeah. We were all conquered by Genghis Khan at one point or the right. other. Yes. And, and, you know, to, you know, through through all of Asia down into Southeast Asia, you know, mm. we're hitting the peninsula, Japan and all of the islands. Like I, I consider that to be Asia. And mm. and what's really hard is that like we're incredibly diverse continent we're not unified by a single language like let's say for example latin america is unified by a single language Mm. Uh, well almost unified by a single language Mm. my bad brazil but um (laughs) yes the portuguese (laughs) my my bad my bad um and then i think there's like a couple countries that were like colonized either by the french or the dutch this is me forgetting Mm. everything i learned from Latin American history in yeah, college. Yeah. My yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. Please forgive me. But <laughs> but we're not unified by a single language, right? Yeah. We're not mm-hmm. unified by similar religions. We're we're so mm-hmm. we're so diverse. And when we immigrate and when we immigrated to the United States, like we're we we're of all very different socioeconomic classes. So it's really hard to define what Asian America is, right? Yeah. And so 
But just I think what our unifying factor is, is that at one point or another, the United States, the UK, France, some kind of European or Western imperialist power fucked off, fucked up and fucked over our people in our homeland. And there's a reason why we're all in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why we're here. And that could either be the US, the UK, France, the Dutch, the Soviets. It doesn't matter. One of some some white people fucked us over. And yeah. that's why we're here. And and I think that's what unifies us. But what's interesting is when the regional differences come to play, like I, I do hear a lot of coastal Asian Americans who are just like, oh, whatever, your story doesn't matter until like Suni mm. Lee won the gold medal. And they're like, oh my God, there's Asians in Minnesota. Who are the Hmong? And it's like, it's Hmong, mm. dumbass. yes and and but it was it was really annoying actually to see that Mm. when you know when suni suni lee won the gold medal for the all-around and people were just like i want that Hmong american think piece and you know i had multiple people text me being like the new york times is looking for a Hmong american writer to write Mm. about the importance of of suni lee And, and i was just like copy paste send 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 because you know at one and one and i was just like yo this is a great great way for some Hmong writers to get that to get that sweet new york times money but also that platform mm-hmm. that platform is legitimate like it provides a lot of opportunities and 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 so mm-hmm. in some way i was just kind of like i was i was totally participating in it because mm-hmm. you know gotta hook up the friends you know what i mean but also at the same time i was just very angry about it too mm. i'm like really really east asians on the coast like now you give a shit like now mm. you give a shit about the very unique asian american culture that is in minnesota i'm like mm. fine all right whatever you know this is a big deal you know it's mm. not every day an asian american person wins a gold medal for the united states yeah. when was the last time that happened Probably a lot. There's a lot of Asian American athletes, but mm-hmm. for Suni and Lee to do it, it what it, it did matter. So it, it is interesting that there is also a lot of narrative gatekeeping that goes on, and mm-hmm. and then also like we can't we can't forget that there you know in, in on the coast there have been multiple multiple generations of Asian Americans who've lived there, and while I I do believe in Minnesota, it's pretty fresh. Mm. we're pretty we're pretty much like immigrant refugee um asian americans we're we're part of that new wave while especially in california you got you got og chinese americans and you got og japanese americans who have been here since the 1890s mm-hmm. so you know it it does it does have difference there is that huge cultural difference that comes to play um but like the difference between you know, I'm speaking as a Korean American. There's a huge difference between us and South Korea. Yeah. And that's like my number one pet peeve right now is people congratulating me, like, or people saying, like, this is your time, Naomi, because mm-hmm. Korean shit is so hot. Like, oh my God, BTS and P 
Parasite. Like, I remember when Parasite won at the Oscars, people were like, holy shit, Naomi, this is... Like, people were sending me Instagram... Like, I could probably find screenshots of people sending me Instagram messages, tweeting at me, or text messages being like, Koreans 2020! This was, of course, just like two weeks before COVID Mm. shut down the country. (laughs) And then it was like, it's not Koreans 2020 anymore! Mm. It's like, let's not hashtag (laughs) any Asians in 2020. We're all being victimized by hate crimes, but... It, it was really funny when, um, like, people were saying, like, this is your time. Mm. Like, holy shit, Parasite yeah. just won Best Picture. I'm like, that is South Korean. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't even call it Korean because the Korean peninsula yeah. is separated into two very distinct countries, North Korea and South Korea. Like, you can't. Like, it would be very assholey of South Korea to just be like, we are Korea, we are Korea. And it's right. like North Korea, like, like there's a lot of history that North Korea holds that is a mm-hmm. huge part of Korean culture and part of Korean history. And also, like, we can't negate the fact, like, North Koreans are still Korean. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the way that we speak our language has, has actually evolved a lot um, mm. just because our cultures have not interacted. South Korea and North Korea mm-hmm. has not interacted. So obviously language, speech patterns have have changed. Like cultures are very different because mm-hmm. of, you know, capitalism yeah. and communism and mm-hmm. also food. Like that, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that plays a huge part of it. Who, yeah. who has, like South Koreans are naturally taller. Oh, I wonder why. Because we, we have milk and also our milk is laden with hormones. Thank you, America, for that. Um, but, and it, it was very interesting to hear this, you know. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, this is this is your time. This is your time. I'm just thinking, it's not my time. I was born in the U.S. My Korean is what my mom calls third grade level Korean. And I think she's being generous in that, in that assumption. And... <laughs> And also just our experiences are really different. Mm. Like as a Korean American, I didn't have to go through the process of trying to get into college in South Korea, which Mm. is brutal. It's brutal. It's a brutal process. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have one test. Like in the United States, you can take the ACT or SAT how many fucking times you want till you finally get the score that you're happy with. In South Korea, you got one shot and that's going to determine where you go to school. Mm -hmm. And and like here in the U.S., we have GPA, standardized test scores, extracurriculars, recommendation letters, Mm -hmm. money, like all of these Mm -hmm. things to influence where you get to go to college. In South Korea, you get a test. One test. You can't fuck that up. And I didn't grow up with that pressure. Mm. I would have. Yeah. Like there's a reason why South Korea's suicide rate is so high amongst young people. I goodbye. Like, you know, I, you know, there's, there's such a distinct cultural difference just between South Korea and the United States. And, Mm. and like as a Korean American, I recognize the insane amount of privilege that I have, especially as a woman. I got to grow up in the United States doing sports, yeah. which is which is a luxury that even as a Korean American, a lot of Korean American women my age did did not, or of my generation did not have the opportunity to grow up to do sports. Like yeah. that is an insane amount of privilege that that I I have. Like when when it really comes to like art making, 
pop culture entertainment. You know, South Korea is pretty brutal to Korean Americans who try to go to Korea and pursue the arts, um, especially in acting music. They're more generous about, but in acting, they're pretty brutal about it because they're just like, your Korean is not as good as ours. And like one of my, one of my really close friends who is Korean American, you know, born and raised in California, like his Korean is really good because he grew up in K-Town. Like that's like, you know, Korean American Mecca. It's the Mm. biggest place like K-Town in LA is, is the biggest, you know, diaspora of Koreans outside of South Korea. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. and they're telling him his Korean is bad, but this man, you know, to me, is would be way more Korean than, than me. Like I, mm. I have tasted the sweet taste of just feminism and mm. and you know, <laughs> like I, I didn't grow up in Korean church culture. Like I've tasted like a life of freedom that I think not a lot of Korean American women experience. Mm. And and mm. going to Korea would be you know, a special, a special place, but also a special hell for someone like me. Um, and, and even then when he was trying to act in Korea, they would, they would say all these disparaging comments to him and would not say that. And, and, and I think that's really indicative of how South Korean, um, art views Korean Americans Mm. and, Mm. and like, it's different in K-pop. It, it, it is because, like speaking English and being able to like work with, you know, the songwriter be like, yeah, like if we just string these random English words together, it doesn't really make much sense. Let me as a Korean American help you figure out the English lyrics to that. And then also just, you know, like, for example, two members of Blackpink, a very popular female K-pop group. One is from Australia and one is from New Zealand because they both speak English they and then also their third member is from Thailand. She's Thai from Thailand, but she also speaks English. The fact that three members of Blackpink can speak fluent English really helps with their international marketing promotion. So I, I do think it's different in K-pop, but mm. but like to be frank, Koreans in Korea don't really give a fuck about Korean Americans. Mm. Yeah. And they, and they don't and they don't really give a fuck about our art. And the stuff that we make, I think, you know, Minati was, was different because there was a very famous actress who was in Minati, um, Yoon Jung, and she's like an OG Korean actress. Like she is, she is the, and because she was in it, you know, I think Korea really like was like, oh shit. And then also they love, they love Steven Yun. They, they just love him because he does, because he has done a lot of work in, in Korea, in Korea but he, what, what's interesting about it is that, you know, he, he was on the walking dead. So he came to Korea with a lot of mm. already like street cred Credit, versus, yeah. Yeah, versus other Korean American actors who try to go to Korea and they're like, eh, not really. <laughs> um, you want to join a K-pop group? Um so it, it is really interesting when when people in the United States talk about like this is your time, Naomi, like you, like Koreans are hot and they don't realize that, well, one, the problem is is they don't differentiate us, right? They don't differentiate Koreans from Korea and Korean Americans, just like how 
so many like for a while like fun bing fun fun bing 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 fun bing fun bing bing yeah 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 mm-hmm. like she was doing all these cameos in all these American movies but not mm-hmm. Chinese Americans no because she already comes like she's Chinese entertainment royalty. Right, of course, right. they're going to cast her. And even though she can't speak a lick of English and also she's <laughs> under house arrest or something like that. Like there's right a now. Reason. Yeah, I think, you know, she like did tax evasion or something uh, like that. That's why yeah. we haven't seen her in a while. But there is a reason why they casted her versus Asian-Americans right. in in movies, because, you know, they don't they don't want to differentiate us because mm. we don't bring numbers yeah. Like, which has also been unproven. Mm. Just because Fan Bingbing was in X-Men did not mean that Chinese people were watching X-Men more right. Than, right. than usual. Like, and also because it was a complete disrespect to her and her role because they would, she was just like featured. Mm. I'm like, no, she's like China's, one of China's biggest stars. Like, give right. her a proper role. But, um... But that's that's the issue, right? They don't they don't yeah. differentiate us. Like for example, a very famous Korean actor is going to be in the new Marvel movie. Um, I think like the whatever next Captain Marvel movie, and he's a very famous Korean actor. And I really hope that they give him like real lines, like they give him a real role instead of just trying to bank on the fact that he's really popular in South Korea and, and hope that Korean viewership will, will happen because that's also like, that's disrespectful too, but there is no differentiation to the United States. Well, there is a differentiation now. Mm-hmm. Asian Americans are just Americans right? in the sense that, you know, we don't, we shouldn't give a shit about them. And, but let's cast all of these people. Let's fund all of these Asian projects in Asia because that's a huge market we want to hit. Like everyone talks about how Netflix has invested $500 million in, into Korean content. Mm-hmm. I would love if Netflix could invest $500 million in Asian American content. Mm, say that. Say that, Naomi. Because... Like, it's weird because I, because I, I deal with numbers a lot in trying to justify why my projects and people of our community, Asian Americans should be funded. Mm. You know, Asian Americans have the largest purchasing power in this country. According to Nielsen, according to Nielsen, a very well-respected research group, Asian Americans have the greatest purchasing power. So why Mm. isn't more of our shit getting made? Um, yeah especially if we're buying shit yeah yeah like even like did you see that show called uh couples therapy showtime it's, it's a, like a you know live reality tv kind of but it's it follows like um these couples in new york you know not mm-hmm. single one of them is, is asian that doesn't make sense it's yeah. new york have yeah. they not heard of queens <laughs> flushing right yeah exactly like you know even yeah if they have a you know another season like i would want to just see one special like season for just asians the asians going to therapy can you imagine like i know there's especially after the year that new york asians have had just being beaten every day on the streets like come on 
And yeah, it's it's crazy. Like it it is it is nuts to me that people are so happy. Like even Asian Americans are happy. Like, hey, as a Korean American, of course I'm happy that Korean culture is being recognized internationally. Like that means a lot to me because mm. my family is Korean. My family is Korean. Like I, I want, I love that BTS is huge. Mm. I love it because yes. I also think they're hot too. Like, you know, <laughs> yes. I'm a fan of BTS. Like I've been, you know, I've been such a consumer of K-pop and K-drama since I was a kid. Mm. And that, it means a lot to me for the world to appreciate Korean culture, especially mm. as some, like, especially since Korea has been sandwiched between two Asian superhouses, China and Japan. And we have been completely overshadowed since the course of fucking history. Like as a Korean, I'm excited that right now our time is to shine. Like this is our time. Great. Thank you. Like, like this is great. You know, we -hmm. did the one thing that other countries weren't able to do. We completely utilize soft power. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time, it's just, Netflix $500 million investment in Korean television and content does not include anything about me and my, my people. And that doesn't, that doesn't even include K-Town in Los Angeles. That doesn't include fucking Flushings in New York. That won't include the four story H Mart in Atlanta. Like it, it doesn't include any of that. And, and it, it does make me sad because, you know, it makes it makes me really sad because it's just Korean Americans left South Korea for very important reasons, mm-hmm. and because there wasn't there wasn't job there weren't any jobs there wasn't any food because of after the Korean War after yeah. what like it's not even the Korean War it's like Japanese occupation plus yeah. the Korean War like back to back all the dictatorships all of the government killings of korean citizens like Mm. you know the imf crisis um in the in the 90s Mm. like koreans left for a reason Mm. to come to the united states and and i wish that korean americans could be honored in that and also just asian americans in general yeah you know how revolutionary it would be if asian americans got a 500 million dollar investment from netflix like I could just see this like I know this is like a comedic set like sketch but I could see like let the communities all decide and put their best you know 10 projects forward and and then you know everybody everybody gets like a couple mil so really make it stretch um and you know and because are we not a part of are we not a part of this and and even though, you know, Korean film, Korean cinema and TV shows and K-pop has proven like there's interest in the world. I think there is interest globally that people would be interested in Asian American content. Mm-hmm. Sure, China didn't like crazy rich Asians. Well, it wasn't about China. It was about Singapore. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like. That's another. Yeah. Another China. Layer, yeah. China was just thinking like, when are we going to fold Singapore back into the Chinese nation? Mm. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding because we all know that's what China is yeah. thinking. No. But yes. 
<laughs> they're like, there's a lot of Han Chinese people in Singapore. La 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 la. Like, mm. um, but you know, crazy rich Asians did really well. Like I had friends in Norway. I had friends in France and Italy being like, Oh, I actually really enjoyed crazy rich Asians. Mm. Um, and, and it was fun. It was a fun movie. Mm. And one, not one story. Yeah, yeah. Just, and, and what's really funny is that I don't consider crazy rich Asians to be Asian American, to right. be frank. Mm. No, I'm going to go. <laughs> this is going to bite me in the ass one day. Um, we don't have to. We can pause. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't really care. But it is interesting that a lot of Asian American narratives are, are about going back to the home country mm-hmm. or are in a completely different language. I think there is a reason why Minati was very successful in the United States. Because most mm-hmm. of it was in Korean. And I think mm-hmm. that kind of reaffirmed that the perpetual foreigner stereotype. Yeah. Because I think that's what people they're you know, comfortable it's just weird, with. Yeah, yeah. People people are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, it's really funny that I was doing a QA for nice and people were talking about like <laughs> this person was just like, there is a lot of English being spoken in your show. Mm-hmm. And I said, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Asian Minnesotans speak a lot of English. <laughs> and also like Asian Minnes like Asian Americans mm. speak a lot of English. Like I am very close to this for like fourth and fifth generation Japanese American family and they speak a lot of English. They mm-hmm. only speak English. The only Japanese that is being spoken is the sister-in-law who is Japanese from Japan. Mm-hmm. because she's like my kids are gonna fucking know japanese so i'm gonna speak japanese all the time but she also speaks fluent english so people talk about like they want they want to they want to chase chinese box office money they want to chase korean box office money they want to chase asia's box office money without realizing that asia has already a very intricate entertainment system yeah china doesn't really give a fuck about us so neither does South Korea. Definitely not India. Like, come on, mm. Bollywood. They're like, yeah, y'all can go fuck yourselves. Like, we <laughs> we can tr- like we're we're good. I wish that people would realize that, aka Netflix, and invest in the communities here. Mm. Invest in that because mm-hmm. Asian Americans don't just watch Asian American shows. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. I watch as a, I'm an Asian American and I watch Hentified, which is about Latinos in Boyle Heights mm, in mm. LA. Mm-hmm. I watch Narcos just like everybody else. Mm. I watch Call My Agent, which is a which is a French show. Like people can fucking read. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Pe- people can fucking read. Like people you know, people can fucking read subtitles, but and then also I think people can just watch other shows, mm. other other things. Like I'm one of my favorite TV shows is Insecure. And that has nothing to do with Asian America. Mm. Sure, there are some Asian Americans in that show because it is Los Angeles. And Issa Rae knows that like no Asians in LA, please. She, she's very smart. She she knows that. But 
but I'm watching that. It is. Mm. Yeah. It's about, it's about black young adults. Mm-hmm. And some of those experiences are super specific, but I, I still relate to it. I still laugh. Mm. I still really enjoy it. Mm. Who's not to say that people can't enjoy that about Asian American content. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think is your work in, you know, in this lifetime of like, right. Like making the fucking work you really want to like characters or people you really connect with um that regardless of their asian or what you know like that is important for for other people to to see that well i think no matter what all my characters are asian i have never okay. written anything that doesn't star or feature asians and it's yeah. not just korean americans for me like i i wrote a half hour tv series that features a chinese american woman mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I think for me, it is very important to center Asian American women. Mm. That is very important to me. But I think what is very distinct about my work is that I don't really talk about identity politics all the time. Mm. I, I think the work I'm trying to do is I'm trying to move past a certain narrative that has dominated Asian American culture, either by people because because of just white gatekeeping and just gatekeeping in general. Mm-hmm. But I'm really trying to create work that, that really centers Asian Americans just doing regular shit mm-hmm. or doing amazing shit or obscure shit. Mm. But, you know, I, like I, you know, I really love, you know, I love Minati. Like that was a great movie, but it was not a movie I would ever make. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not. I think, and, I, and you know, it's hard because in like film and television, we're like 40 years behind every other artistic medium. Mm-hmm. But like, for example, I'm not really interested in talking about the smelly lunch story. I think that's really indicative of a certain Asian American identity. Like. That, that those white kids said that my lunch was stinky. Yeah. yeah. Who gives a shit? Like it's gonna, it's gonna be said. It's gonna feel like shit, but you can mm-hmm. also like throw food at them. Like, yeah. You know, it's, it's the smelly. Yeah. It's the smelly food narrative mm-hmm. that I'm not really interested in. Totally. I want to, I think. And then also like my life's work is, is to see Asian American people fall in love. It's actually, um, because I don't, I don't really see that. I think when Asian Americans get to, get to be in love, it's always with somebody who is white. Mm, Yeah. Yes. Oh, totally. And, and I, you know, that's cool. Like Asian Americans (laughs) do fall in love with white people. It happens. Um, but I, you know, I don't really see Asian Americans together. Mm. The only time I see Asian Americans together is they're not Asian American. It's just Asian people from Asia. Mm. And, and that's really, you know, that's something I, I really want to see because mm. I think that's like, I think that is the one thing our community is grappling with and not grappling with well. Mm. 
So I guess maybe I am talking about identity, but I at least, you know, I'm talking about it in a different way. It's hard because we're yes. always going to talk, talk about identity because yeah. we live in the United States. White supremacy is very real. It affects all of us. So identity politics politics is going to be talked about in certain ways. But I do think that we can talk about it in ways that are different mm-hmm. and maybe not so like trauma porn based Yeah, is really, really big. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I talk a lot about identity politics, but I talk about it in the sense that like white supremacy is the reason why I'm single. Right. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think a lot of people are really shocked that I say that. They're like, what the fuck, Naomi? Really? White supremacy mm. is the reason why you're single. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. Let me break it down to you. Mm. And and I think it, it it is a little bit of a different way versus mm. of, you know, Billy or Jimmy, you know, bullying me when I was mm. little. Like I already took care of that. Mm. I took care of that. I pushed mm. both Billy and Jimmy down the stairs. Like they learned their lesson really quick. <laughs> I'm more interested in how identity politics and like how racism and sexism and misogyny and white supremacy has affected aspects of our lives that we haven't really even thought about yet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Totally. I, I, I definitely think like what inspires me is like when, when an artist could, you know, um, portray like colonialization or imperialism by um, what's the best way of describing it like it's you know it's not on the nose it's not like saying those terms all the time but it's like you know maybe it is through like a love story it is through like um uh you know caretakers or like you know these dynamics that you could see what are the histories that are carried on these people's backs and that you know like affects their interpersonal relationship and that is the work of you know colonialism and all of the isms yeah totally yeah you know i think and i think that's our job as artists right Mm. yeah I know that people sometimes get really annoyed by like storytelling is a very effective tool to change hearts and minds. But I do believe that. I do believe that Mm. because when I do talk about like my story about how white supremacy is why I'm single, I get a lot of white women who now understand where I'm coming from Mm. and I'm not chasing white women acceptance, but I, what, but what is interesting about that is that for example, if I'm like, it's, it's about the delivery, right? If I'm going to make a story, if I'm going to say, like, uh, if I'm going to, for example, do a comedic set where I'm just like, you know, white men, eh, you know, they, they, eh, you know, they tell me like me so horny or something like that. Or like, you know, I'm going to talk about the sexual objectification of Asian women in a very academic term, but not Mm. in a personal term, then I'm not going to really have people understand what I'm going through as an Asian American. But when mm. I talk about how white supremacy is why I'm single, I'm not necessarily talking about how white men have treated me. I'm talking about how Asian American men have treated me and how white supremacy has changed the way that they have viewed dating and dating Asian American women. Mm. Like a very strong example is that an Asian American guy that I was very into and we had, you know, 
this stupid flirtation but he talked a lot about like i could never date an asian girl because it would be like dating my sister and when i explained that about how this perpetual stereotype of how white people have constantly said that all asians look alike now they see like the visceral Mm. like they feel the visceral effect that i'm feeling like, how do you respond to something so ridiculous? And that's the whole point is that it was always ridiculous that the whole fact that all Asians look alike, I'm like, that's the whole point. That stupid white racist term is the reason why I couldn't get with that dude. Mm. And then they're like, Oh shit, Naomi. I didn't know it ran that deep. I'm like, yeah, I missed out yeah. on some quality dick there. I guess, you know, <laughs> at the time I thought it was quality dick, but it yeah, no. obviously wasn't. He needs to go through some like shit. Yeah. He needs to go to therapy. But yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because now, now I got people to be on my side, not mm. just white people but also asian americans they're like oh i never thought about that in that context i'm like yeah Mm. we could have been something but we Mm. it didn't happen that's something that's really hard about that we're all grappling with as especially asian american storytellers because gatekeepers and this includes asian american gatekeepers want the stinky lunch story Mm. because they're comfortable with that Right. And they're not ready to hear about some of the things that that do affect us. And then also maybe not put us in a good light. Like mm-hmm. we can't just be victims in every story. Sometimes we're, you know, sometimes yeah. we do shady shit too. And yeah. yes. And it's it is it is kind of, you know, because the stinky lunch is just like it it just there's that whole complete victimization. Mm. of the situation mm-hmm. and you know and i think those stories do matter like our our asian american elders you know like are walking through the street and getting beat up by people because of they think that we are the reason why covid is happening that's that's mm. fucked up that's very important but you know i know that people are going to be telling those stories Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in talking about the things that maybe affect us on on a on a level that we don't we haven't thought about it quite mm. much yet or that mm. we don't think affects our lives. Mm. You know, I'm talking about this as a single person of course, so a lot of my stuff comes from how mm. racism and misogyny, sexism and white supremacy has affected my dating life. But I also think, you know, there's a lot of single ass people out there who who, who want to know that too. Mm, no, no, I love, I think that is, um, your brilliance is, you know, like situate with yourself and just, you know, like just talk about it from yourself and that connects and relates to people. And like, and, you know, like I, feel like I could just talk hours with you on, I know. on this stuff. Yeah. But like, so I think one thing is like, you know, it's the title of the show. It's called Where To From Here. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I don't have an answer to that. That's okay. I don't know where to from here. Mm. If I was just like, I could say the really corny shit of like, keep doing what you're doing. Hell no. Like, I don't know. 
Yeah. I'm doing what I'm doing and I don't think it's working. So. Mm. Hmm. Or how about, how about like where could people engage with you and engage with your work or, you know, um, like, you know, get to talk about like, you know, a million things we haven't really gotten to talk about. Yeah, I guess uh, Twitter, because I'm active on Twitter and I like to yell at people on Twitter. Um, okay. So my handle is Ko, K-O-N-A-O-M-I in the letter E, Ko Naomi. Um, my website's a fucking hot mess, but go ahead, check it out. www.konaomi. Um, .com. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe should we just start a campaign to get Netflix involved? Because, come on. I think that's really what this episode is about. Where mm. to from here? Netflix, give us $500 million to Asian Americans. That means Americans of Asian descent. Remember, from the Asian tip of Istanbul, all the way to the islands in the Pacific. It includes all of us, North and South, you know, not the not the white Russians, but the Asian Russians. And the Mongolian and Kazakhstan. Yeah. And, yes. Yeah, like we need a proper Genghis Khan show, not that fucking yes. Marco Polo shit. I yes. like, like I want to see Genghis on a horse shooting down bitches most of them are probably my ancestors that he shot down but oh well do you know Genghis Khan is actually a feminist his daughters yes Yes. because he put his daughters in charge of all the provinces yes Yes. he was a mass rapist but he also put his daughters in charge everybody read the daughters of Genghis Khan it's a book it's great it is is. yes yes I love all these people are people are complex yeah people are can be terrible people, but also good dads because they read like the beauty Mm. of Genghis Khan. And this is Mm. probably like one of the very few things that I can compliment Genghis Khan on Mm. is that he knew that his sons were useless in administrative roles. He was like, if I'm going to conquer this new part of Asia, I need to put one of my daughters in charge because I want that shit to be run well. And my son's, are stupid they're good on horseback they can shoot an arrow all right come with daddy I like <laughs> i appreciate that i appreciate that i i want to see a skit now about this i, <laughs> I would love to genghis yes. khan genghis khan's daughters yes his son is just like but dad i'm really good at running a province too shut up get on a horse shoot an arrow <laughs> Your, your sister's better for this. Mm-hmm. She gets women get shit done. Mm. But dad, what are we good for? Nothing. Mm. Killing. Mm. Destruction. That's what men are good for. Get on mm-hmm. the horse, son. Totally. I know. And I what was disturbing. Like, I haven't finished the, the entire book, but, you know, I got to the part where it talks about, like, because his favor over the daughters, like, that caused just the rest of the time is misogyny uh, and rape and mass rape and destruction, like hatred against women because of the way Genghis Khan like honored his daughters. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's <sighs> yeah. I mean, come on, Netflix. Let's get an Asian American yeah. production of Genghis Khan and his daughters. It'll be Daddy Gengi and and his girls. <laughs> I would yes. I I I want to see that. I would love to see that. I think I want to see that too. <laughs> uh, thank you to uh, Shalu and Naomi for a wonderful conversation. Uh, so lucky uh, that we get to listen in. Uh, this is Where To From Here, a podcast from Moonplay Cinema. This is the beginning of season three. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes. See you later.